Let's check the economy. Each Monday, we call up CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. And boy, the stock market was looking pretty good last week. So I asked her, what do you what do you take from that? It's not everything, and it's certainly not the most important thing in most people's lives. But, of course, when things are going up and you make new highs or you break these round number milestones, it does feel good. And we can mark it by actually learning a little bit about what do all these indexes mean, which I think is important because they are not created equal. The most uh, sort of the widely reported one is called the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And it's probably the worst index of them all, even though it is the oldest, because it's just 30 companies. And, you know, when this was first introduced back in, are you ready for this? 1896. Remember that, Dave? We were there for the opening. <laughs> yeah, I think it you're was right. awesome. <laughs> At 1896, it was supposed to be a way that people could quickly open a newspaper, look at an index, and understand what are publicly traded companies doing. They were meant to give uh, the public a way to gauge the overall performance of financial markets. And these 12 companies were supposed to represent the most important industries in the United States. Just 12 companies. They were, you know, in the beginning, all railroad companies. By 1928, we moved up to 30 companies. That's where we still are. And hello, Seattle, Amazon is replacing Walgreens boots uh, in the Dow as of today or uh, announced as of today. And so again, it's an old index, but it's only 30 companies. And the way it's calculated is nuts. It's just based on the price of a stock. So any company that has a large, uh, has a high stock price is going to have a bigger impact on the index. That's kind of a crazy way to calculate it because the price of a stock is one part of the equation, but it forgets, the Dow forgets the other part of the equation, which is how do you determine how big a company is? It's not just the price, it's the price times the number of shares that are outstanding in that stock. So that's why most professionals think the Dow is kind of cute and old timey, but useless. Huh. I thought it was weighted, so it, it was at least it had some kind of basis in reality. Well, it's weighted, but it's only on price. So if you look at, say, Microsoft, it's trading at $400 a share. It's a much more important contributor to the Dow than Verizon, which is 40 bucks a share. The next index that kind of corrects those two problems of size and calculation is the Standard & Poor's 500 index. That was introduced in 1957. And instead of 30 companies, we've got 500 U.S.-based companies. So now that covers about 80% of the overall market. So that makes more sense, right? Also, instead of just using price to determine the weighting on the index, we have something called market capitalization. So again, this is the price times the number of shares outstanding. That weighting actually makes the S&P 500 a much better index than the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh -huh. And the NASDAQ. The thing about the NASDAQ is it's got all these companies I've never heard of on it, at least yeah. most of them. Yeah, well, I mean, the NASDAQ started as the, um, as the, the world's first electronic st stock exchange. So if you recall movies like, let's say, Wall Street or Trading Places, there were physical trading floors, right? Now those are just backdrops. Those are not useful. But in 1971, NASDAQ is created. It's a way for smaller companies that are not able to list with the New York Stock Exchange yet that they could become publicly traded. And as a result, a lot of the companies that you haven't heard of are NASDAQ stocks. But some of the biggest companies that you've heard of started as NASDAQ stocks, and, um, and they are a lot of technology companies. Companies. So that's why when we look at the NASDAQ composite today, it's got more than 2,500 companies. It is market cap weighted, but it becomes a little bit of a shorthand for tech. You know, when people like me right. get on the radio and they're like, ah, it's the tech heavy NASDAQ. It's not all tech, but more than half of it is tech. 
We're talking with CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Last week, we had historically high markets. The Nasdaq up above 16,000. The S&P at 5,000, Dow at 39,000. So what is the easiest way to get a an accurate snapshot of where the market is at at any one time? I think the S&P 500 is pretty good. But if you really want the broadest index, there's something called like the Wilshire 5000. It's, you know, more than 5000 companies. But like, you know, you can look at this and say, well, what what's the easiest way to do? But no one's quoting the Wilshire, even though no. old nerds like me love it. So I would say the S&P 500 with the NASDAQ kind of give you a, a sense of this. But, you know, listen, these indexes have been sliced and diced and created. You know, Standard & Poor's now has sector indexes. You can look at an energy index. You can look at a healthcare index. You can look at a large cap. You can look at a small cap. But what's in your portfolio is usually an S&P 500 type of mutual fund. In, you know, Very common to have an S&P 500 index fund in a retirement plan. Maybe a bond fund. Maybe a commodities fund. A little bit of everything together. That's what allocation really does. Um, I, I'll just point out one other thing. And when you look at an index and you say, why is the market going up? You know, well, there's more buyers than sellers is a smart aleck way of saying it. But what's been powering stocks over the last year or so is technology. And specifically, there are seven companies that have dominated financial markets over the last year or so, and they're called the Magnificent Seven. Some of them are in your neighborhood. Can I recount those for you? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> and the Magnificent Seven is Apple. Mm-hmm. Alphabet, Google's parent, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, Facebook, Tesla, and a company called NVIDIA. Oh, Have you of heard of NVIDIA? AI, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, so NVIDIA makes chips, chips that actually were powering video games. So it's a very robust company for many years. Just so happens those chips are also used for AI. And so NVIDIA has been the most magnificent of the Magnificent Seven. They've been making money like crazy. You know, interesting, because you and I lived through the dot-com boom and bust. And what is different in this technology boom is these companies are all profitable right now and very profitable. And I think that when people think back and they say, oh, this we're in a bubble, we're in a, it's every time is different. And this time, the big difference is the companies that are powering ahead are making money. And that's actually a good thing for investors. So good. We're not talking about tulip bulbs. We're talking about something that really is making money. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, if if as long if if you believe what um, the Nvidia earnings call last week kind of gave us a shorthand for, they they basically said, if you're going to build an AI platform, you've got to start over, and you need our chips to do that. Well, I mean, if they're the only one making those chips, other yep. people will start making those chips, and um, if AI is to become something as important as we think it's going to become, we don't know, then this could be the real deal. It could be another technology boom that is based in something. Again, the difference between today and where we were in, say, 1999 is that a lot of companies that were trading at very high prices and were gaining a lot of attention were not profitable by any stretch of the imagination. And these companies are. CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Right now, it's time for Crime and Punishment, our weekly check-in with Casey McNerthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. And I wanted to ask him about catalytic converter theft. It certainly has dropped out of the news. I thought that was a good sign, but uh, apparently it's just because we're tired of the issue. It's still out there. According to Casey, it's something lawmakers have been addressing at Olympia, especially when it comes to the illegal resale of those stolen 
converters. Fortunately, there's a there's a bill right now, 2153, that Representative Cindy Ryu has championed, and that had a, a hearing last week, and that is designed to go after the demand for it, because Gary Ernstdorf from our office, who's been working on this for years and hasn't forgotten it even when it dropped out of the news, has said, if you, if you take away the demand for it, then you're not going to get people with Sawzalls in the middle of the night ripping off your catalytic converters. Right. Here's Gary testifying last week about who's most often victimized by these crimes. One of the more disturbing findings that we came up with was that how this crime disproportionately impacts lower income folks in your jurisdictions, the people who can least afford it. Those folks often have older cars with more valuable catalytic converters. They don't often have insurance to cover, uh, and they may only have one vehicle, meaning the resulting impact and impact ability to get to a job, a school, or other necessary daily functions. The work group found that one of the best ways to combat is more carefully regulate the detached catalytic converters and the marketplace. So here's why it's so frustrating for people and why it happens so often is when you're investigating this crime, it's very difficult for police to, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt who exactly did it. Because there are situations, you know, where we look at it and say, well, obviously this guy ripped off a catalytic converter. But what's obvious in common sense can't always be proven under the law. So what you get is after that 30 seconds to rip off the catalytic converter, once the guy's down the block with this hunk of metal that's worth a few hundred bucks, there's not a VIN number on it. There's not a consistent marking identification number on it. And, and so it's proving that takes a ton of time and resources. And even if you do get a conviction there, the amount of time under the statewide sentencing guidelines is not what victims would yeah. like it to be. Yeah. So here's Gary explaining the situation that we're in right now. Right now, we have a Wild West marketplace that conducts the lion's share of the illegal transactions going on. That marketplace has no licensing requirements, no record keeping, no inspections, no regulations, no nothing. And as a result, there are plenty of criminals occupying that space. Bill 2153 directly addresses the issues that the work group identified. It requires catalytic converters to be marked so they're traceable. So law enforcement doesn't have to walk away from that pile of catalytic converters that everybody knows is stolen, but they have no way to trace back. It requires purchasers to be licensed, regulated, and inspected. And it creates specific and real penalties for those actors who will continue to play outside the rules. Consumers get protection. Law enforcement get the tools they need. This is a win for everybody, win for every Washingtonian. Now, there's one part there that's going to jump out, or yeah. they probably jumped out, is no inspections? What are you talking about? There's got to be inspections, right? Because we, we, yeah. we've heard about those. Well, here's what Gary had to say about that. The work group looked for any inspections statewide that was going on for any purchase of catalytic converters, and we found evidence of zero. Zero inspections going on right now. 2153 will change that. This bill targets those unlicensed individuals who are out there buying and selling used or stolen catalytic converters every day. So this burdens the thief, not the upstanding business persons, the persons in our community. Catalytic converters do not have individualized serial numbers. They have model numbers that help law enforcement trace it back to a vehicle, a model make maybe, but not individualized. What we targeted was VINs. There's already a database of VINs. Law enforcement can piggyback on that database pre-existing. It's an easy way to make these identifiable. So basically nothing was being done to discourage the rogue buyers of these things. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. All right. So what do we have now? So this is up tomorrow in the Senate uh, executive session for the Senate uh, Transportation Committee at one thirty. So we'll see where it goes with lawmakers from here. We're hearing from Casey McNerthy of the King County Prosecutor's Office. 
On another matter, we reported months ago on the string of home invasions happening around the area, targeting what appear to be older Asian-American residents. There are now new charges being filed against the people alleged to have been behind those crimes. So this happened last summer, and then the initial charges were sent to us in in the fall. And at the time, what King County prosecutors did was, was file unlawful gun possession charges against the two defendants. And a lot of people said, hey, what about a hate crime charge? Or what about burglary? Or, or there's got to be more here. And what we said was the unsatisfying answer of the police investigation is still ongoing. And sometimes when people don't hear about it in, in the news, they wonder, is it really ongoing? Or is it just on somebody's desk collecting dust? And Seattle police had been working for months on this one behind the scenes. And just on Friday, uh, additional charges were filed. The two defendants are now facing a hate crime charge and also multiple first degree burglary counts and also felony assault. Mm. Okay. And give us a feel for what the sentences for that would be if convicted. If convicted, that's that's years. So hate crime is a class C felony, which is also pretty unsatisfying for, for people, especially with how, with how it impacts the community. But those first degree burglaries, uh, multiple counts, and, and, and that felony assault, if convicted as charged, and, and those combined sentences could be a pretty significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. And you have an update on the uh, Richard Sherman DUI case. Yeah, so he's expected to be in court later on this morning. A lot of people say, well, why is he going to King County prosecutors? Is this a felony? It's it's not a felony referral. If you're on a state road, it goes to King County. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're on, on a city road, it goes to the municipality. And we have an update on the organized retail theft ring that we now know is working in this area? Well, yeah. You know, last week when we were talking about if there are businesses that want to work with us and and, and have us come on on a tour of their shop, we heard from somebody from Albertsons and Safeway who listened to this segment and then reached out to Nicole Lawson and said, hey, we'd like to do a tour with you. and Can you come out? And so we've got that plan for early March. And it was was nice to see that that folks are listening. And if other people want to do it, the email is uh, kcpaoretailcrimes at kingcounty.com. Gov, and we're happy to come meet with you, too. Excellent. Remember, there's more of us than them. So uh, if uh, if you want to stop this, please participate and uh, help out. Casey, thank you. Thanks a lot, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Forgiveness can be kindness. After a mother's 2020 death by a speeding driver, Stacy Green grappled with grief and anger. Yet a new perspective sparked hope amid her depression. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. Nakia Cherry and Stacy Green may look like besties from way back, but this is a bond born from bitterness. I love you so much, Miss Stacy. Do a twirl. Four years earlier, Stacy's mom, Rosie, was killed in a car crash. The other driver, Nakia Cherry was doing 73 in a 45. Atlanta area police charged her with vehicular homicide, and Stacy was glad to see her suffer. Yes, I was consumed. By what? Anger, sadness, loss. I mean, Stacy was furious. Let's see. Attorneys Jeb Butler and Tom Giannotti represented Stacy in the civil trial, and they made sure to keep the parties in the case apart. I was worried that if they got together, the result would be incendiary. I was very pleasantly wrong. Instead, last October, Stacy went up to Nakia in this courthouse. She thought of what her minister mother would say and then told Nakia, I forgive you. And when I forgave her, it's like I was reborn again. 
You make it sound like a miracle. Nothing short. It was an extraordinary step, but only the first step. From then to now, Stacy has gone so far beyond the words, I forgive you, to the actions of, I love you. She's like a godmama to me. I talk to her every day. Nakia lost everything after the crash. She now lives in a motel. So I am committed to her life getting better. Like how? So I've helped her with money for food. You've given her money? Yes. Rent. I was her daughter's secret Santa. I booked a trip for her to go to Miami for her 40th birthday. Her attorneys say they've never heard of anything like it. She's remarkable, you know, remarkable person. And all that's great, you know, that separates conversation from conviction. Stacy didn't have to do that. I'm gonna cry. Um, Actually, Stacy says she did have to do all that, or she could have never forgiven herself. We gotta make the best out of this situation. Steve Hartman on the road in Atlanta. Wow. Now from the G and Ursula show, which runs nine to noon here on Car News Radio's G Scott. Good morning. Hello, G. Yes, sir. So uh, it's about time this happened. We're going to have body cams on uh, referees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. We need that because we have some. Well, we have a problem in society. Period. When it comes to conflict resolution. Oh yeah. It's number one. Yeah. But even before it gets to that, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's something in your little red cup at Little League Games. I don't know if you believe that Johnny's going to the NBA. I don't know if you believe that your son is the next Cam Newton. Probably not a good example. But either way, this is a problem in youth sports. So what's happening right now is is uh, the opportunity to put cameras on officials while they are doing their jobs. So then that way, when Colleen screams at the official... I would never. Right? When she screams... You know what's interesting? You you know what's interesting? And, and, And Sully, back me up on this one. Here's what I've learned. The people that you least expect to go off, when it comes to their children being out there, I don't know what happened, Sully. You've seen some people, you're like... Lois, yeah. you act that way? Yeah, parents have lost their damn minds. And <laughs> I mean, and I kind of fell into that. That's why I started coaching to kind of make sure I was I was on the field and helping the kids and I knew I couldn't blow up because that would be a bad example. But yeah, we call them mama bears. Mama bears. They are probably worse than a lot of the men. When so, oh, when Johnny gets a little something something, she's like, "Mama and they yeah. go nuts. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's in that. And we have a lack of officials because no one wants to put up with this garbage anymore. Yeah, why would they? I know in one league, a friend of mine, her daughter plays in a league and they make all of the families and the parents sign a pledge that nice. says yeah. you may not nice. speak to anybody. You may not touch anybody. You may not make a gesture at anybody. Right. And if they break that rule, the entire team gets disqualified. So. I want to take you guys back to when I was younger, and I don't know if you guys have seen this at any gas stations or stores, but when I was younger, one of the things that stood out to me the first time I ever saw it was I walked into a store and I saw pictures 
of people that have shoplifted, <laughs> right? The yeah. shame method. So, yeah. so you, oh, you guys have seen this I've before. Seen this, yeah. Yes. I used to think to myself, "Wow, that would be the worst, right? Yeah. You steal something, and then now everybody knows that you are a thief, and your picture's there." And that's what I think about these body cams. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, no, I was never that way. Here you are, here you are, Cindy. There you are, right there in 4K. In your experience, yes. Sully and and G, mm. is the child usually being taught by the parent to also act that way, or do you find the child going, "Oh, I can't believe my parents doing that"? I, that the latter. Yeah, back. The, I, can't, I, can't, so, I can't. Yeah, I can't believe my parents are doing that. Mm, right, and so they see all of this. And, but I will tell you this: back when fees. To play sports when we were younger were $30 and $40. Mm-hmm. First of all, a lot of parents, when I grew up, a lot of parents wouldn't even at the games. Well, you know what I mean? They were just doing it for they, fun back then. Now they're bingo. doing it for a livelihood from the time they're five years old. Now you families coming out $3,500, $5,000 for these selected. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you, oh. You didn't know you sports is a new preacher. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It starts really? young. They passed the basket. <laughs> There's. There's a lot of money in this now. No longer are the coaches. Remember, when I was coming up, they were the volunteer coaches. It was the dad. You all rolled in the dad's van and all. That's exactly how I grew up, and I'm sure a lot of you grew up that way. Now you got coaches stipends and people making livelihoods, yeah. and you, you know what I mean? So you ha- this is a whole different game. So this is what you get. You get a lot of people that are invested. Their weekends, so their time, their money. So can you blame the money. parents for getting angry then? Yes. If that much money is on the line? Yes. If that mu- well, yes. And I don't, yes, they they are part of the problem, mm-hmm. but the system we've created that churns kids into scholarships factories mm-hmm. and the parents pay up, hoping their kid will get that scholarship yeah. or that star ride to the university of choice, we've created a system that's created parents who are fighting for these limited spots. Mm-hmm. Colleen, it's a very good point. And now you've forced my hand to say mm-hmm. what I did not want to say. What's that? There's a lot of kids and families that are out here that are being told that, oh, yeah, you, you're going to play D1 college ball. And you're not. And only, you I'm going to promising something. No, no, no. I didn't, it's not necessarily a promise. Oh, it's telling you that that you could do it. And it's so, hope. and so sometimes. Huh. And have you have you got one last thing? Have you ever seen a score in youth sports where the basketball score is like eighty-five to four? Right? Have you ever seen that before? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you you have that out there, right? And so what I'm trying to say is is that. It's not necessarily a promise, but it is just kind of this understanding and this thinking like, if I stay with this, I'm going to get here. Mm -hmm. So this is why people and parents and families get so mad when there's not playing time. I came all the way here. I spent all this time and my baby only got three minutes of playing time. It's a it's a mess. I could talk about this for three hours. Well, fortunately, you have a show of your own, which starts at uh, nine o'clock on Cairo News it's Radio. It's a three hour show. It's a three hour wow. show. Look at that. Right now, we're going to check on what's being discussed by lawmakers in Olympia. We're closing in on the final weeks of the session. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich, and uh, Matt, they're talking about now a tax on short term vacation rentals, and also in a completely different issue, 
outlawing child marriages. So what's the status of those? Well, good morning, Dave. Well, I want to actually start, I'll get to that in just a second, but I just want to follow up on your discussion you had with G regarding referees and, uh, yeah. and yelling. So uh, we've been talking about a bill that would make it a Class C felony, five years in prison, up to $10,000 fine for abusing a referee. Well, that passed the House, 97 to nothing, but it never got a hearing in the Senate. Hmm. So it's over. They're uh, that attempt to kind of protect referees is kind of dead for this year. And they, anyway, you know, 11 days left in the session. Uh, big, Real quickly, the big three things are going to happen this year, uh, this week, are those uh, hearings on those initiatives, the income tax initiative, which would prevent an income tax uh, at all in the state and county and city level. We we don't have a, we have a law right now that says there's no income tax in the state, but this mm-hmm. kind of re, recodifies all this. Uh, that's going to have a hearing tomorrow. Uh, the parental rights bill, which is basically the initiative that many say that's already in co- uh, codified in law right now, yeah. that's going to have a hearing on Wednesday. And then you have the police pursuits is also going to have a hearing on Wednesday. That's going to be the most contentious one. But by the way, I think what this is going to be really be is this is all window dressing because either the Senate in the House either have to give a thumbs up, thumbs down on the exact language of these initiatives. Right. And I think they, the Democrats have counted the votes, so they know that they're going to pass so it. There's no they chance can't make any changes to it. Caesar not going to pass them before the uh, election? No, no, I think they will pass. Oh, they will pass, really? Yeah, I think that there's... In the Senate, it may pass, but the House is going to be the issue where will they pass the House? And that's a more contentious chamber. Yeah. But, uh, but it's all window you, dressing. On the parental rights thing, I've never had trouble getting a look at my kids' curriculum. Are there schools that are keeping it a secret? I don't know about that. But that's why they're saying this is repetitive. So that one yeah. and the income tax one are pretty easy yes votes for all everybody. Yeah. Um, but it's the police pursuits, whether the House... We'll go for that, and that's what we're going to be waiting for. So, anyway, yeah, let's go talk real quickly. Let's talk about what I wanted to talk about, which is this: people not realizing this is going to happen, most likely, this short-term rental tax. Yeah. Now, state lawmakers are considering giving the cities and counties the option to implement a 10% excise tax on short-term rentals. Uh, the bill is Senate Bill 6175, and that would tax the nightly rate on short-term rentals lodging made on online platforms only like VRBO and Airbnb. Now, under the provisions of the bill, the tax rate could go up to 10% of the sale with increments no less than 1%. Now, here's the bill's sponsor, Liz Lovelett of Anna Chorus. She testified to the House uh, Finance Committee on Friday that the bill is needed to fund housing for tourism workers who don't live in the area where they work. With the proliferation of short-term rentals in our communities, it became very evident that the very service sector employees that are trying to staff these tourism-dependent businesses were being pushed out of houses that had traditionally been in the long-term rental market. And the bill doesn't limit the cities who want to do this, that they have to have tourism as part of their economy. A city and county can implement the tax for whatever reason, but it has to go to housing, the money. But if both the county and the city levy the tax, then the city tax would take precedent. Now, revenue generated from the tax would be earmarked for specific purposes related to housing initiatives in that area. Now, the mayor of Leavenworth, Carl Floria, told the committee that his town depends on tourism and needs to create worker housing. We have about 80% of our workforce has to be brought in from the outside. We're very quickly losing our community, period. 
And here's an interesting fact that he brought up. I didn't know this, that despite its population of less than 2,500, the hotel receipts for the city of Leavenworth are the third highest in the state at roughly $4 million a year behind wow. Seattle and Spokane. So, And this city makes more money in its hotel lodging tax than it does in its sales tax. So they're very dependent on tourism. It would the, give us several hundred thousand, um, which isn't a huge number, but it's more dollars than I have right now, and we could start addressing it. So the bill would require online platforms like VRBO, which is owned by Seattle-based Expedia, to impose the tax. Now, Expedia's Brent Ludeman told the committee his company was originally against the tax when it was first discussed several years ago, but is now supportive, supportive of the tax. And he, asked, and he was asked about why he thinks they want to support it, even though it would mean a loss of homes to rent. Has Expedia thought about the competitive disadvantage that this might put BRBO in compared to hotels because of this 10% tax? We really see it as a pressure release valve. You know, we've got a number of tourism communities where the local folks are very concerned about the impact that tourism is having on them. And so rather than having those localities banned short from rentals entirely, we would prefer that there is this pressure relief valve of a tax that they can oppose to be able to tell their folks that they are addressing some of the concerns that they're seeing in their communities. So it's the better of two evils for mm, yeah. uh, Expedia there. You know, rather let's let's not ban all the short-term rentals. I'd rather have them and have the tax. So so the idea finally, so the, just to understand this the, the reason they would want to ban short-term rentals is that it's driving up property prices or No, what? it's it's uh, it's taking away rental with all the regu- regulations on rentals, long-term uh-huh. rentals, people are going to short-term rentals, and it's easier to control your client in a way in your house because they'll be out of there in, in a week. I see. Uh, so there's a lot of cities who don't like short-term rentals; they need it for long-term rentals. Oh, so, I see. So it's it's so it's basically crowding out people who need those homes as housing. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. So, and finally, I just want to put her in. Here's Arlene. She's an Airbnb uh, owner and is against the bill. This means that I could be required to pay an extra $100 for every $1,000 I charge a guest. And for those of us who are retired, and I'm also 70 years old, this is a lot of money. This tax would raise prices on our guests, and it benefits the hotel industry over everyday Washingtonians. So finally, on this, the House passed the bill in a near-unanimous vote last week. Now the full Senate could is expected to vote on the bill this week. Mm-hmm. And finally, right. try- make it brief here because we only have a few minutes. But on the marriage age, yeah. So what the, this is going to go? This is going to become law. Uh, child marriages will soon be illegal in Washington State. The legal age to get married will be 18. After both the House and the Senate passed the bill outlawing the marriage, anything under 18 now it goes to the governor. And I'll just say this, I won't play any sound bites. I'll just say that the, the, what the issue here was the judges. Uh, up until now, you can get married under 17 if you have approval by a legal guardian or a judge. Uh-huh. And now they wanted to put the judge. Now, now it's the judge can't do it anymore for whatever reason. The bottom line is it's going to be you have to be 18 no matter what. There are no circumstances where a legal, I'm going to say legal here, legal marriage can be given uh, for somebody under 18. Okay. And that uh, that's going to pass. Yeah, that's already passed. Uh, there was no changes, so it's going straight to the governor, and he's he's expected to sign it. All right, got it. Matt starts Markovich June, starts June sixteenth, uh, oh. June sixth, June sixth. Matt Markovich, thank you. You're welcome, Dave.
This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Should you be getting a preventive full body scan, even if you're feeling just fine? Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. And there's a new company that, that is suggesting that people indeed do this kind of uh, preventive scanning just in case there's one of those uh, tiny tumors that you can't feel yet but uh, could kill you later. What do you think about this? Interestingly, Dave, this is actually not new. This is just a new company. Um, You know, when uh, CT scans first came out, uh, there were actually uh, businesses that opened uh, private businesses where you could just walk in and get a a CT scan. In fact, uh, a lot of people were doing this part of, you know, the craze at the time were these so-called executive physical exams. But uh, the truth is, is at least in the case of a CT scan, people were getting exposed to unnecessary radiation. And uh, and there were issues, which we'll discuss now, because companies are now starting to open up, uh, offering whole body MRIs as a proactive screening tool. Um, now, the difference between an MRI and a CT scan is a CT scan uh, exposes you to radiation, whereas an MRI does not, because it's different technology. And in fact, MRIs are far more sensitive and, and provide much better, uh, much better imaging. The problem with this is that um, if you're feeling fine, and there's nothing wrong with you, and you just go walk in and lay down in a CT scanner, uh, there's a very good chance that there will be some abnormality that appears. And the question then becomes is, well, what is the meaning of that abnormality? And oftentimes what ends up happening is that uh, people will then worry. They'll then show up in their doctor's office with a CT scan and say, hey, look, I've got this. Right. And the um, this was covered in The New Yorker. And the story indicates that there were some people who had, for example, an aneurysm, which to me sounds very scary, but apparently some of them are benign. Others found uh, small tumors, which may also have been benign. And are you saying in some cases it's better off not knowing you have these little abnormalities? Yeah, that's not really how we practice medicine. I mean, in some cases you could argue, but it's going to be a very, very small percentage. You might pick up a cancer, say maybe a pancreatic cancer that, first of all, is uncommon. And secondly, often doesn't present with symptoms until much later in the disease when it's very advanced. But if if we took on the approach of just like scanning everybody to look for rare cancers, first of all, it, it would be an enormous drain on the healthcare system and the cost would be intolerable. The thing is, is that it also puts patients in a bad position because if you have some little nodule in your lung, it doesn't mean that it's cancer. And frankly, more often than not, it's not a cancer. But the thing is, is then a doctor, if the scan doesn't answer the question as to what it is, you may find yourself undergoing a whole lot of unnecessary medical tests in order to try and identify what this uh, what this nodule is. And that could include something as as invasive as having a a biopsy or even an open biopsy, which is a small surgical procedure. And you you brought up the the example of aneurysms. I mean, people have aneurysms and aneurysms of the aorta, let's say. If you have one, sure, we'll follow it, but we don't usually operate on them unless you have a reason for them to be operated on. So, you know, if you're, say, an average 
40-year-old man with no history and you don't have a connective tissue disorder, you know, like Marfan's disease or something like that, you know, having a, a, a slightly enlarged aorta where a radiologist may call it out as an aneurysm is not something that's going to get operated on. It's something that may just get followed and followed for many, many years. But just finding these things out randomly uh, can result in a whole lot of unnecessary tests. And if people just start doing this right and left as a screening tool, you can just imagine, uh, you know, what would happen in healthcare. I can see why this is tempting, though, because we are hammered every day with the idea that you got to catch these things, catch these things early, get a yearly mammogram, so you catch it early, uh, take these blood tests, so we catch it early. And so if somebody's saying, "Hey, here's an MRI scan, which isn't as dangerous as the old ones were, and we might catch something early." Right. But the question is, if you're doing, you know, tens of thousands of, of um, MRI scans to pick up, you know, a one in 100,000 tumor, I mean, is it really worth it? I, it you know, it's a, it's a complicated uh, question to answer. For that one person, sure, it's absolutely worth it. But, for example, the American College of Preventive Medicine has argued that it's a complete waste of money and healthcare resources. And the American College of Radiology, which theoretically they actually stand to benefit the most from more imaging, they said in a statement that, quote, there is no documented evidence that total body screening is cost-effective or effective in prolonging life, unquote. So there's sort of a thought that, you know, if it's not broke, then don't just MRI it. There has to be a reason to, to, to get the MRI in the first place. If it's not broke, don't MRI it. <laughs> Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.